This is David Weiss with Psych and Sales. And as usual, I am joined by my uh, beautiful co-host, Dr. Aaron Weiss. Um, Aaron, you want to say hi to everybody? Hey, everyone. And we are joined today by our second guest, Dale Dupree. Thanks for joining us, Dale. So Thanks for having me, y'all. Absolutely, brother. And as many of you out there in podcast land probably know Dale Dupree. Uh, Dale is the leader of the Sales Rebellion. He is also fondly known as the copier warrior. And he is all about helping people tear down castles and build kingdoms and conquer various demons within sales. So Dale, thank you for coming on the show, sir. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So tell us, man, um, the Sales Rebellion, for the people that may not fully understand where it came from, why it was started. Um, talk, talk to us about that. Yeah, there's there's kind of a personal reason and then a bigger picture perspective around the community. The personal reason is that I couldn't let my father's legacy fade. <clears throat> and that legacy starts back in 1984 when he founded his copier firm. I was born a year later, toner running through my veins. So was my little brother and my little sister. My big sister didn't get toner. She was already born. So we joked <laughs> We joke about that occasionally, but uh, although she is like kind of the coolest one. So, I mean, it could be that toner's bad for you, but (laughs) so for the next 17 years of my life, after I was born, I've lived in that small business. It was everything to me. It was weekends with dad, you know, they were spent headed to the office and you know, back then you don't really think much about why you're going there, but you just know that you know, there's something fun to do, like massive copier boxes, you know, that he would leave for us that we could build forts out of. I mean, these things are massive, right? Because you're talking about machines that were four or five feet tall, you know, that come in these giant crates, right? And so my dad would just keep all these fun little things. And you'd be out there playing in the warehouse thinking, you know, we're out here to play and have fun. Meanwhile, my dad's like doing paperwork in the office, right? And you kind of get a realization of that as you get older, for sure. But you just, life was small business, but what was cool about my dad's work was that he's very intimate with people. And so even if you were out there over the weekend, it wasn't that it was just my dad working. So most of the time other people showed up because they wanted to support, they wanted to be a part of, they wanted to help, they wanted to build. But that was extremely successful and his own right. You know, that you, you'd look at the things he owned. Um, you know, he had, he did have a house in college park that I'm sitting in right now. Actually, I bought it after he passed away, but you look at the things you own um, in the driveway, like his Ford Exploder, and you'd say, why? Are, why? <laughs> why do you keep fixing it every time it breaks? You know, because to my father, what was most important, it wasn't so much the status and the luxury and the things as much as it was the hearts that he touched and the people's lives that he changed. And I, again, as a kid, like you don't, you just don't think about these things. But when you think back as an adult, <clears throat> you start to re- realize and kind of further imagine all the different things that you witnessed and, and the, the reality and the truth of those things set in, such as the prison system and how my dad hired out of it. And, and we knew that he hired out of it because we visited some of these men and women in prison <laughs> like wow. after they went back, you know, because it was just a probationary period concept, right? But places like that where my dad, he was not afraid. He feared no man. He was only afraid that his 
mission would not be met on this earth. And so at, at 17, I, and I used 17 earlier for a reason, I, I ended up rebelling, you know, no pun intended. And I went out and I, I started a band and I had been playing in a band for a couple of years at that point. And it was, it was a dream. It was in the garage and you know, it turned into the family room at some point because the garage was too small. And then that turned into stages. And then that turned into stages in our outside of a church and in a bar in Orlando. And then that turned into stages across the United States. And then it turned into a major record label and a lot of fun. And then that process of what it was that I was building and searching for, what I kept coming back to was this thing that my dad had back at home, a wife, kids, a very stable life a very happy life that was still adventurous, that was still fun, that could be obnoxious at times as well too, which is a great thing. You know, people think copiers think boring. I mean, man, I've got stories like you wouldn't believe. And I craved that. So I came home, I worked with him for four years and then he sold the business. And then the process of selling the business, you know, one of the things that I didn't realize necessarily at the time in full was that my dad was setting me up for massive success. Within the first three months of, of selling the business, my, my, I came to the realization of what was going to happen to me, which is that suddenly I made a $27,000 commission check as opposed to digging my father out of debt because of 2008 <laughs> and the, the swine flu epidemic uh, or pandemic that happened back in 2010 as well, too. I was, a, I was a field rep during the worst time you could possibly get into field sales, right? 2007, at the end of 2007, all the way until 2012 when we sold the business. But in 11, I was crushing it. And crushing it at my company meant that I made about 50 grand. And that was before taxes, right? So we all know how to do math here. And, and so it felt like a million dollars compared to the 20,000 after taxes that I'd been bringing home. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it, was, it was great That's to dig two, out of those More than things. two and a half X in, increase, man. That's, yeah. Good huge. Lord, right? You know, but, but then, you know, I, I sat back and, and recognized that my father was giving all this up for more than just himself. I mean, he had, bro, he, real talk, and I don't talk about this too much, uh, especially on podcasts. So this might be actually be an exclusive, maybe the second time I've done it. Um, he had offers to sell his business for eight, $900,000. He took a, a quarter of that offer to set me up for success, to set the people up that he served for success, to set his employees up with the best employer. That's how he looked at it. And to me, all those things, they just didn't sink in until later. And, and later was four years later when he died. And it's, it's tough to say that. And it's tough to talk about it always. I get a, a massive lump in my throat and there's a pit in my stomach that resurfaces, but it's something that's important to me. And so when I sat back and I looked at my sales career and the things that he had done, I sat back and said, well, how do I honor this? And I've, I ventured ever forward with my sales career because of it. But then I, I woke up one day and realized that what I had learned in my sales career was something that most people don't get, which is a leader that is, is truly not a CEO. <laughs> he wasn't even a salesman. He was a servant. And, and because of that notion and this mindset that my father had built into me, I recognized the need for sales training. The sales rebellion is based on the concepts that my father created, right? And those are all the personal, that's the personal explanation. The, the big reason for the community is not just, you know, because I think selfishly, I want my father's legacy to live on. I'm just being honest. And, and, 
if it were up to me, that's all I would do, <laughs> quite frankly, because all the things that he never got mentioned for doing, all the awards that he never accepted because he didn't want the spotlight, right? All those things were extremely difficult for me to witness and, and watch to any capacity without getting to see some kind of reward, you know? And so for me, this is my way of rewarding my dad in my own walk. But at the same time, I recognize that sales doesn't have a community that, that sales has a bro culture, that sales has toxicity bleeding throughout every single inch and corner of it. And that there are people out there that have a pretty good message but to be quite frank with you, bro, it's not enough. And, and, and again, like I, I support the, the leaders that are out there today that are, that are preaching this concept of how we can change the face of sales. But most of them do it with, you know, at, at having at the forefront profit, you know, and I don't mean to say that I'm some kind of super hippie communist and don't believe in money by any means whatsoever. I mean, I'm in sales for a reason, right? But what I do be believe and what I do mean is that we're not focused on people enough <laughs> that like there's a balance and we don't meet it. You know, we sit back and say we care about people and then we fire them after 120 days because they didn't hit their quota. Right. We sit back and say we care about people. And then after like a year of them working for us and they're finally hitting their groove, somebody else puts in a resume and it just looks better. And so we fire them because we think, well, it took this person 12 months. Who knows what's going to happen next? So what? They hit their quota one time. Who cares? And move on. Right. And these are real stories from the trenches from people. And these are the PG stories, dude. They get a lot worse. And I'm sure that you've experienced it to, to some extent in your walk. But the rebellion is not based on this idea that we're trying to come in and tear down anything that is good, <laughs> that is safe, right? We're here, we, we're, we are here to, to lead the charge for change for, and the premise of hope, on the premise of hope. And, and so with that, you know, the, the two biggest reasons for starting the rebellion is the community in which we will serve and that we are serving the movement in which we we will slowly hand off to the next generation and become nothing inside of it because it's the next generation that matters more than us and the shadow of my father. I love that, man. It's it's such a beautiful journey. And and I've heard parts of that story before, but I think I, I heard even more now. Um, so that's just incredible. I, I, I love that so much of what you do is to honor your, your father's legacy and you honor that every single day. So just, you know, much love, man. And thank you for sharing your story. Um, when, you know, when I'm hearing things like, Hey, 2008, tough times, 2010, tough times. So I, I, I'd love to hear like, you know, to go from uh, success to tough times, it's very similar to, you know, a lot of what people are living through right now. So, you know, how, how was your head then? Like, what, what were you feeling? And then what were some of the thoughts going through your, through your brain? So, yeah, I, I worked three jobs at one point. I, I, I was bar backing for my mother-in-law's bar. I was doing bartending at a wedding venue. And then I was selling copiers with my dad. And really I was like wearing every single hat with my dad's business. So and I wasn't just selling it in the beginning stages in 2008. Like I was driving the truck. I was delivering toners. I was helping with stuff that I wasn't really supposed to be doing in the first place because it, we needed people to step up to the plate. I mean, we needed to get things done basically on a budget to some extent, right, as well, too. And so it was, it was a mind game, bro. Like every day was a mind game. It was, what are you going to do to survive? 
thankfully I had had a father that wasn't, you know, toxic, right. He didn't have this, you know, male masculinity issue. He wasn't afraid to cry in front of me. He wasn't afraid to kiss my mom in front of me. He wasn't afraid to be wrong. He was an awesome man. And so I, I could sit in these moments of just total turmoil and feel safe. Even if I was pissed at him, you know, I knew I was safe because he wasn't going to take anything personally and that he was understanding of what was happening and that I didn't know any better. Like in his mind, he's thinking like, yo, I, I came up in the seventies, you know, and gas prices were ridiculous and interest rates were 20%. You know I mean? Like my dad experienced something similar to it. And if you think about the, the, the rest of the years that he was in business as well too, the NASA was one of his biggest accounts, you know, the space center went away at one point. Right. And he relied on that just like a lot of people did. So my dad felt so many different versions of economic turmoil that for him, it was just kind of like another day. But instead of leading with this whole mindset to us of it's going to be OK, stop worrying, stop acting the way you are. He let us have our moments. Right. And so for me, it was even though I was in the midst of survival, my dad would just preach patience to me and he would say, do what you need to do to feel comfortable for sure. But patience. And, you know, it was, what was interesting too, is that, you know, I, <laughs> my mom tells these stories the best, but like I'd call her up like on a Thursday night and say, Hey, what are you guys having for dinner? Because we had no money and, and we were in a mortgage and we bought a house in 2007, dude. Like, don't even, don't even talk to me right now. And the thing is, is that we still have that house. It's a rental. And like, I'm so proud to have that house. And like, and it's a testament of what we went through and how we survived it. Yeah. Because there was a point where we couldn't pay our mortgage. We, we missed like six payments. Right. I remember those days, like yesterday I was like, we're going to be homeless any, any minute now my mom and dad are going to hate me because I'm moving in, <laughs> you know? So it was frustrating. But I, again, I think more than anything, it was the concept of, for, from a mindset perspective, is the concept of trying to understand what was happening that drove me nuts because I couldn't, I'd never experienced anything like it. I, I, and I didn't really come from massive success, but in my band, I was making more money, man. And I was much safer to be quite frank with you. And so leaving that was frustrating. Um, and the circumstances were frustrating because it wasn't just that I wanted this new lifestyle. It was the things that led to it. It was the addiction from some of the other members of the band. It was the, it was all the temptation of the road. It was, it was things that you just kind of wished weren't there in the first place. Never could really understand why they were there to begin with. But as a 21 year old kid, you're not really thinking about that stuff. You're just saying, I got to make a decision more than anything. You know, as a 31 year old kid, it's much different. Like we could have probably sat down and said, okay, let's talk about this. Heroin is not a good thing. And this <laughs> okay. is why. <laughs> you know, so, that would, be, would have been a lot different. <laughs> I'm hearing a lot of, um, you know, just fear and, and uncertainty. Um, back in those times. What, what did you do to kind of, you know, work with that and, and overcome that? Well, the first thing that I did that I profess anytime I have the opportunity was that I, I sought my faith and I relied on Jesus. And so for me, it was like connection with that inner self concept where everybody else was looking for this surface level fix. Like, how can I go fix this? How can I feel good? You know, who can I go bang behind my wife's back to get some kind of like rush or stimulus? How many drugs can I do tonight at this party that's around the corner? How can I just check out of this reality that, in which I live that I don't like in the first place? People seek in most cases 
something that satisfies the flesh to some capacity, yet they're afraid to admit these kinds of things. Like somebody said to me back in those days, they, they made a comment to me. They were like, I wish that all the people that say things like it's going to be okay. Weren't the same people that are at strip clubs at two in the morning, you know, when, when nobody knows about it and their family of four, you know, and, and their wife is up drinking all night thinking, when is my husband coming home? Like, and it's a great statement to make. And it's something that we should call out in society because it's honestly, it's been taboo subject for so long. Like, but these men and women have money and they have power and they earn it. They can do whatever they want with their life. And this is happiness. No, it's not. It's sorrow and it sucks. And it makes the rest of us that are on the outside looking in kind of either we envy it. You know, when we say this, you know, why am I in this vanilla lifestyle when I'm watching this dude ride around at a Lambo in 2009 when everybody else is suffering? Like, what am I doing wrong? And seeing these lifestyles and seeing these addictions and seeing these things as normal. And, and really, it was this concept of, but what is, what is a reality behind these things? And like, where can you head to instead of faltering to this, this addictive lifestyle and this concept of to fix your fear, you must ignore it. <laughs> Right. That's what a lot of people end up doing. They pretend as if they're conquering it, but really they just are pretending that it's not there in the first place. So, yeah, that's that's really powerful, Dale. So this idea of ignoring fear as a way of, of fixing it is something that's out there a lot. And I heard you talking about how your dad didn't do that. He didn't pretend things were going to be OK. He sat with you in it and he, he let you have those feelings and I think it's really amazing that you have that experience because it's something that's so hard for people is to just acknowledge and let things be hard and not know if it's going to be okay and not just pretend it away and um, ignore what's actually a problem that's going on. Um, I also heard you use the word safe several times as we're talking and I'm wondering um, if part of the rebellion really has to do with safety for you, creating a safe place for, for salespeople. Yes, it's a very inclusive place. Uh, we want people from all walks, all ways of life to know that they have a home here and that we're not going to judge what you think. We're not going to judge who you sleep with. We're not going to judge you know, what it is even that you think about sales. We're going to slowly try to enforce this concept of you evaluating what's bad in your life and where you can change these things. But we're never going to do it in a way that feels like it's strong arming you. We're just going to be that rebellion that you need in your life more than anything. Like, you know, like we get it, but maybe ask yourself this question. And, and, and most people will figure out whether or not we're their tribe in those instances as well, too. Because a safe place is also a place that makes you uncomfortable. Because it brings you in and it says, we will absolutely love you no matter what you're doing, but why are you doing this? We just want to know. And when that question comes out, a lot of times it's difficult for people to say, this is why, you know, I ask young men and women all the time when I first start training with them, who are you and why do you exist? And most of the time, especially the young ones, but I'm going to tell you right now, the 40, 50 year old sales reps do the same thing. They go, um, um, well, I like to, I like to think that I live to be good. And, and you hear this and you hear them struggling, you hear them thinking and you hear their wheels turning, you hear them hitting a brick wall over and over and over. They've never asked themselves this question. And to me, it's a travesty. And, and, and so the safe place, though, is, is that they can come and express these things and we're not going to judge them. We're not going to say you're silly or you're stupid or you live in la-la land. We're going to enforce what it is that you believe for you. 
We're going to say, if this is who you are, then follow your path and we're going to hold you accountable to it. Right. And if you don't like it, then, you know, at some point, then you can leave. Like we're not holding, we're not uh, Waco, Texas or any, anywhere weird like that, you know. <laughs> this idea of really like growth through discomfort that you're, you're embracing with that, which is, you know, I think great because we all want to move away from discomfort, but then we don't grow. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's hard to find a place where people will accept you and let you think through things and not judge you for it, but question you to still think about it as well. I, I like that. It's really nice. Yeah, of course. And if you tie it to sales, think about the millions of people that pick up a phone and say, hi, I'm so-and-so with this company. I'd like to book 15 minutes in your calendar to do this and that. And blah, 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 blah. And, they, and everybody does the same thing. And it yields the same mediocre results. We teach, we ask people the question of, have you ever thought differently about that? Are you afraid to say this? Why not try it? Right. And that really makes people uncomfortable sometimes. Like I've never done that. You know, it's, I've been cold calling for three years and I've never done anything like that. All right. We'll try it. Ah, oh, that's really hard. You know, and even watching them do it live sometimes is pretty funny because people that have been doing it one way for so long, it's very uncomfortable to, to think outside the box, but we challenge them to think about the person listening. Nobody wants to hear about your 15% or more savings program, right? <laughs> they want to they hear about impact, relevance, familiarity. They want to feel something in these moments. Geico got rid of that slogan me. at this point. So. <laughs> I, you know what, bro? If they haven't, we should petition that they do. <laughs> <laughs> so talk, talk to me about, you know, you, you speak to lots of salespeople. Um, and I, and we've all struggled with some aspect of mental health through our lives. When you look at, you know, the, the big rocks, what are, what are some of the big things that either you or you're seeing others kind of struggle with when it comes to, you know, mental health in sales? Across the board, it's like every sales rep to some capacity questions themselves and, and they do it silently. And, and sometimes it's in this, this weird format, like, or, or form, I should say, where they punish themselves even in the midst of, you know, saying like, I'm not good enough. Right. So what, to me, it's, it's really questioning their own character and testing their own, their own might more than anything, but, but it's weird. It, it goes on different levels. Some people are a little bit softer about it, but a lot of times you'll hear people say, I know I can do better. Right. I know I can be better than this. And then you see them do what it is that they're doing. And you, and you say, but do you care? You know, because I hear you expressing this outwardly, but do you actually care? Because if you did, you'd be changing all these things. You're already aware of them. I do this wrong. I do that wrong. And they turn around and do it anyway. And we're all guilty of doing this in general in our lifestyles, right? You know, somebody says, I'm never going to look at porn again. And then they six months later popping it up on their phone. Somebody says, I'm never going to smoke a cigarette again. And two years later, they're drunk at a party and they smoke one, right? It's this concept of we, we would prefer to forget about it, right? That's what we would prefer to do. But in the moment, and when you're talking to somebody, they, they think, help me. They don't want to say that, right? It sounds desperate. It makes them feel weak. And people, people are uncomfortable by that. I'm going to tell you right now that it was the best thing that ever happened to me to go to my wife and say, uh, I, I am not who I say I am and I need help. And I, I'm extremely depressed and I'm, I was going to kill myself up until this moment. And, and through realizations, I was able to be able to come to her and, you know, through other things that happened prior to this encounter to say, 
I don't want this either. And, and imagine like that it, it being like a callus essentially that salespeople form and that we form in our lives in general, that it just builds and builds and builds. And so we don't know what's under it anymore. All we feel is this nothingness. And because of that, we lose sight, entirely lose sight. And it takes us to a very dark place. And that's a serious place too. It really is. It's not to be played with. And so when I hear someone say, I'm struggling with this, I go deep. I don't just say, let's work on that. I say, why? Why are you struggling? So that's, that's really powerful. And, and, and uh, to your point, let's, let's unpack the why a little bit. Like, so um, I feel like a lot of salespeople, they, they go through waves in their career. They go through fear. They go through uncertainty. Um, they go through self-doubt when they get low. That self-doubt potentially leads to depression. Depression, you know, lead, leads to the thoughts that you're talking about. So, you know, you're, you're, man, you're a super strong, super powerful person that has, you know, living a legacy and building a legacy for yourself, you know, based on what you're trying to, you know, remember and, and, you know, do uh, based on what you've learned from your father and your faith. So how did you do that? Like, what, what did you do? And then how did you get past some of those thoughts and feelings? You know, I have to just give so much of the credit to the things we can't see. Yeah, I really truly do because I believe that that's what kept me in the place that, that I was in regards to sanity, that my faith was what overpowered all these things that were beating at my door. It's really the only explanation at the end of the day, because if you'd have been standing next to me, you would have been like, what is stopping him? Right. Because you'd have seen the writing on the wall. You would have seen the actions. You would have seen my double life essentially which was, you know, uh, to an extent, when people get to this place, they find it some kind of fix to make them feel better about the decisions that they're making. Like you don't just drive home sad every night, you go somewhere, you park your car and you get out and you do things that are extremely inappropriate to not just like what it is that you, who you are or your relationships or your commitments, but to the community as well too. You feed something that is much darker, but is extremely prevalent around us. Places that you drive by every day in some cases, right? It's this idea too of when you check out, you recharge, but you're recharging in the pit of despair in the most evil place you possibly can, right? With substance abuse all around you with very dark things that go beyond even some things that you can state outwardly in general without people saying like, wow, that's disgusting. Right. But it, but our world is starting to see a little bit more of that thanks to Netflix, <laughs> right? Like what the existence really looks like around us, how evil things are. And so my faith would be the first, but bro, between my wife and my father, you know, those are the people that saved my life numerous times. And I will also give credit to my community and to what I was, what I longed and desired to build deep down inside these relationships, this way of selling as a new generation, as somebody that would stand up against what was out there that was evil, this concept of constantly cheating, constantly stealing, constantly taking advantage of people. It wears you down over time. It is not good for your soul whatsoever. And, and it was those things that really bothered me more than anything and drove me to insanity to some extent on top of everything we just talked about, the economy, <laughs> the uncertainty, being in a new marriage as a young man, you know, trying to afford a mortgage, you know, <laughs> in 2007, you know, I mean, it was wild, 
right? I bought a house at the peak of the real estate industry is like the highest price the house had ever been. And it's never made it back, by the way. (laughs) I think you bring up a really interesting point. So there's a concept in science. um, Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Um, So your, your mental health lows have an equal and opposite reaction of trying to fulfill them. So as someone is, is experiencing these negative thoughts, they are doing something equal or greater to combat them and, and often a, a, a negative way. Those so, ways can be healthy or unhealthy. And those yeah, ways can be healthy yeah. or unhealthy. And what you're kind of describing there is, you know, people doing using that in an unhealthy way. And the more negative their thoughts, the more negative or unhealthy their actions. So as people reach these really low lows, they're, they're acting out in, a, in the lowest possible way. Um, so first, and Aaron, I'm going to turn to you after this, but, you know, first, I think it's, a, it's some self-discovery. Like, are you noticing your rhythms off? Are you noticing your, your mental state off? Are you noticing yourself doing uh, more drugs, doing more unhealthy behaviors, thinking more unhealthy thoughts um, than maybe you usually would? And if you're noticing that, then that means you're, you're going down a deeper and darker path that will perpetuate itself if you don't change um, the thoughts that lead to it. So I, I'd love to know kind of your, your thoughts on this because, uh, Dale, what you're bringing up, I think, is something that a lot of people struggle with and a lot of people spiral out of control with if they don't check it. Uh. Yeah, I, mean, I think that the desire to not feel negative emotions can be really strong. And the, the fastest and easiest way to do that is to try and numb and self-soothe and, and avoid as opposed to going into it, which we were talking about earlier, facing the challenges, facing the pain. And it sounds like you had um, a really great support system that helped you get through it. And that really, that genuineness is what stands out to me, that when you were able to be genuine with the people around you and be accepted for that, and when you were able to um, really be open about your experiences that that kind of aligned to your actions, to your values. And, and you were able to move away from some of those more unhealthy patterns and into a healthier direction. Am I hearing that right? Oh yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> as soon as you expose the darkness that, and when people know about it, it's, it's not that you, that you're kind of ashamed of it, but you really want someone to know about it because you really want them to support you out of it. And the, the, the shame is this concept of like what it is, you know, mine was violence. I was a violent person and I, I had come through some traumatic experiences in my, my young life as a child and a young adult, they were my doing, they were always my choice. Um, you know, it was like things like, I knew I wasn't supposed to be doing this stuff and I tried it anyway and I went there anyway and I did it anyway. And, and it led to trauma and which led to, you know, being when you're sad, like you go to those places. It's like, Oh, well, I, I think I've felt this before. I know what to do, you know, is the concept. And, and I feel, I feel personally as though I've beat those things, but only because I'm extremely aware of them and I embrace that they have never left me and that they're still here. And that I could flip a switch any moment that I wanted to and go back to it. You know, so people that talk about like, I'm changed, I'm free. Like my dad was an alcoholic up until he was 35, 1986, January. And when he quit, you know, he found Jesus and he changed his entire life. And he became the man that he was, 
which was a legend. And when I sit and I think about the conversations I had with him where he addressed things like his alcoholism, he would tell me, he would say, look, I didn't need to go to AA, which I always thought was incredible. And my dad just cold turkeyed, you know, smoking cigarettes, drinking like a fish. I mean, the guys, the stories, I can tell you some stories. <laughs> it was, and it was, it was great because I, we, we never knew that part of my dad. We knew about it and he exposed a couple of things, but when he passed, you know, the people that came out of the woodworks to support me and mentor me, knowing that that was my crutch, that that was the thing that kept me going that made me successful that I, I talked to my dad every day. I was one of those, you know, that if there was a day I didn't talk to him, it was like an empty hole. And so imagine like waking up one day and realizing that it's gone forever. And in those moments, I, I had men come and step into my life that were like, we know how close you were with your dad. And he was, I was his best man in his wedding. He was the, I was the first person he ever hired. You know, it was amazing to see the doors open and people almost as if my dad made a bunch of calls right before the end, which is a crazy thought too. But if you look at this whole concept of the way that my dad would help us to see how he dealt with it, it was always based around the concept of accountability always, no matter how you spent it, my dad would say, you can't beat this stuff on your own, you know, cause you could easily say, well, your dad quit and he didn't need AA. My dad would tell you that Jesus is the biggest reason that the men that were aligned with his faith were the people that held him accountable to being sober all the time, no matter what, even 30 years later, you know, <laughs> you know like calling him and saying, are you, you know, and it was really 25 before he lost his life to cancer. But, but, you know, just checking in, how is your sobriety, <laughs> you know, like not celebrating his sobriety, but encouraging him to continue to chase that path to the end, you know? So I just felt like that is that's the kind of brotherhood. I want, that's the kind of community I, I long and yearn to build where we can sit around and we can talk about things that are tough and that we're not ashamed of it. And that we understand that there's a short window on this earth that we populate it. And that what's most important is the mark we leave. What will the soil say about us when we're gone? Right. And that's, that's how I look at it. That's so powerful. The, the legacy you leave based on the choices you make. And, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm hearing throughout this is be, be open to talk about it. When you're in a dark place, seek people to talk about it. Um, learn skills um, that can help you learn, learn healthier ways to cope. And then when you have those thoughts and feelings, challenge yourself and, and try and change that internal narrative that's going through your head. Um, so be, be open with it, seek help. And then, you know, getting to a place where you do find healthier ways, but we're always going to slip back. There's always going to be things. So right. Not deluding yourself into thinking like, this isn't ever going to be it's a problem gone. again. It's, it's gone. gone and ignoring it and then pretending it or not pretending it never happened and expecting it to not affect you again, that you have to uh. kind of always keep that in mind. And it's a, it's a constant work in progress, right? You're, you're never there. Well, and it also sounds that, I mean, Dale, you, you have a lot of appreciation for who you are and you, I feel like you love who you are. And when you're going through um, those times, you remind yourself, you know, that you are better than that. And then you have gone through this and there is a different path and there is a better way. And I feel like you, you teach people that. Um, so I, I don't know if that's some actionable advice that you, you give, you know, the folks that are listening to this, but um, I, I think, it, I think it could be. But agreed. And you're spot on that. It's a choice at the end of the day to recognize who you are and to love yourself. And I mean, how can you love other people until you love yourself? in the first place. 
you know, so when I recognized just how much my dad loved a strange person on the side of the road, you know, that he was willing to pick up and, and give a ride to with me and my sister that were under 15 years old in the car, that the risk that he was willing to take to serve the community, I started to recognize that my dad loved himself. He believed in who he was. And that was why he was able to express so much how he, how that, that he loved others and how he could serve them. So I agree. Man, these are such powerful topics and I think they can benefit so many people, but so many folks are scared to talk about these things. Why? Why is it still such a stigma in in our society to have these types of real conversations? Well, I mean, mostly just because of the plastic that we have to deal with on a daily basis. And, and like, I'm not trying to get political, but look at the people in power. Look at the public offices around you. Look at who runs your city. Look at who runs your state. Look at who runs your country. And sit back and recognize that these people have put themselves there and that everything you see is fake right? Everything you see is fake. It is only there so that you and I will feel good about it. And that we can sit back and go, oh man, isn't America great? Isn't Europe so wonderful, right? It's all a farce. If we would sit back and recognize that it's us that make this country great. It's us that make this world amazing. And not these people that have put themselves in a place of power and make you envy it. And also make you feel like you have a place inside of it because they've allowed you there. Right. When you wake up one day and realize that the people that have made these rules are no smarter than you, you unlock something for yourself. And in the moments of doing that, you start to be more honest. You know, you'll sit around with people and they'll all be surface level bullshitting and you'll sit back and go, well, wait a second. Do you mind if I if I say this? And how does that make you feel? And then you start to tap into the real emotion of other people where they go. I've never really thought about that. Or that's not possible. It's this concept of rising up. It's this concept of sitting back and saying, what is the status quo? And is it good for us? <laughs> because technically it's not. <laughs> if you really sit back because it shackles us. It shackles us to an emotional being that we're not even created to be in the first place. It's, it's the idea of eight to five, bro. We were not meant and made to work. You know, even if you believe in evolution, Right. You think that we grew our limbs and can walk on two legs because we were destined to start working and making money. No, you're insane <laughs> if you think that. Right. And so we have to recognize that what we do even on a daily basis is insanity. Right. And so we have to take that mental mindset and, and create aptitude around every little thing that we do in our life so that we we become a very, 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 very understanding of what it is that's happening at all times and not sitting back and questioning going, why are people like this? But knowing and admitting that they're like this because it's the easy way out and we're not the easy way out. <laughs> we choose something bigger. Well, and I, I'm hearing, you know, find, find a place where you belong, find safe places, find safe people. Um, but talk about this stuff. Because if you let it, if you don't, and you let it fester and you let it sit inside your head, it, it's not going to get better on its own. So, you know, seek out leaders like yourself, seek out communities like the, the Rebellion and, and others, like find, find a place where you feel safe and, and then have conversations because it, it will benefit you. It will be better. Um, any, any other, you know, thoughts around, you know, that and then what people should do if they're, they're feeling some of these ways. Um, well, it really sounds like you're, you're saying just don't buy into the system, right? That, you know, that's a big part of the problem. And that if you're not buying into the system, there's still a place for you. You don't have to fit that system 
to be okay and to stop kind of believing the idea that that's the route to being happy or, or truly successful is to fit into this idea that's put out there that's perpetuating really an unhealthy approach to a lot of things. Um, and I, I like that. I, I think that a lot of people do get caught up in this idea of what are people going to think and, and fitting in and, and not recognizing that you got to find who fits for you and that's your place. And that and when you can align your environment to who you are, that things will feel a lot better for you a lot of the time. Agreed. You know, I think one of the best examples that I ever witnessed in my life, that's, you know, a, a story I'll tell to the day that I die. And I hope, you know, that my son tells it as well too, is the story of the architect. This concept of somebody that, and you're not an architect because you just decided to be an architect. Like you're a nerd, right? You love the concept of creating and building, right? You, you have, you're a visionary in most cases as well, too. You're someone that can sit back when someone says, you know, I want a big one. And they make it so nice and so beautiful. And so in general, they make it so aesthetically pleasing that it doesn't even matter who you are or if you hate it, you'll recognize it, right? Love or hate. And it's an emotional driving factor. There is no mediocre in the way that a, a good architect looks at their craft. So, you know, imagine that you've got, you know, a guy that's spent 50 years building things all around you, right? Generations upon generations see these buildings as well too. And all they see is Toys R Us and Wonderworks and Best Buy on the sign. They don't understand the love and dedication that someone put in to create these things, these buildings, these empty shells at the end of the day, right? And, and meanwhile, you have this human that's lived this very romantic life, right? Where they are very intimate as they draw out these plans. And this, is, this isn't the year 2020 that I'm talking about either, right? Because now it's just like, you know, voice activated, turn left, you know, draw a 36 degree angle, right? But, but imagine 50 years ago, right? when a pen and a pad was all you had. That was something that was extremely, that connected somebody extremely well to what it is that they were doing. And that's love more so than anything else. We have gotten away from love in society in general, but more than anything in sales. Sales is a toxic culture. Sales is a beat em up, ragtag, you know, get in, win the deal, screw the other guy, make a fat commission check, who cares about anybody, move on, buy the fast car, have the sexy chick in the front seat, change her out every couple weeks, because that's what's cool right? We, are, we have completely dumbed down the romance that can be inside of sales because sales is going to your, your customer's Thanksgiving dinner with their family. Sales is going and watching one of your, your prospects' first child's baptisms. Sales is going to the funeral of your client of 30 years. Being connected is what we miss inside of our sales walk being romantic and bringing love back to the forefront. Man, I, I love that. I, I, I feel like we should end there, but um, I, I want to resources, man. Um, any, any big things like if, when you're struggling, uh, who and what do you turn to? And I feel like I kind of know some answers here, but any, any recommendations for, for the folks listening? But I almost want to end yeah. on bring love back because that's it's just so powerful. You can you can have two versions, like put this yeah. one, put that one out, and then like have this one secretly, like when people click. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, well, the first thing I would tell everybody is to find a good devotional. Mine is Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. It's very encouraging on a daily basis in regards to what it is that your focus and walk look like, you know, and if it listen, like if you're not a spiritual, if you're not a God person, but you're interested in connecting with your spirituality buy that book, you know, don't be afraid of it. Don't worry about the fact that you might believe in God afterwards. Like it will encourage you is what it will really do. It will, it will design something in your mind to be able to sit back and say, wow, this actually makes a lot of sense. This fluffy mindset crap, right? It makes a lot of sense. And, and that's what will change the dynamic and the trajectory of most people's daily walk. But the second thing I would tell people to do is that, you know, there's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of things that people can go and dive into from, you know, cinema to audio, even, and I've done a lot of this stuff, man, but what I will tell you is the, is the most impactful is call somebody in your family and say, Hey, did great grandma have a journal? Hey, does anybody know the stories about, about grandpa and his time in the Navy and go and start talking to the people inside of your own family. You have this wealth of stories, this wealth of legacy sitting right in front of you that you've never even tapped into because, Oh, I hate my dad, you know? And that to me is extremely sad because I would give anything to trade with you. No, that's, man, that's beyond. Um, where can people find you, man? If, if, um, if someone needs help, they want to talk to you, where, where's the, the best way to, to see that or, or meet the, the leader of the sales rebellion? Uh, somebody told me a long time ago, they said, until somebody can Google your name and you show up on the first six pages, you're nothing. So I, I said, challenge accepted <laughs> and spent the last five years doing that. So Dale Dupree and Google, or if you want to get with me directly, salesrebellion.com, hit the about page. You can find my cell phone. If you want to find my content, linkedin.com backslash I am backslash copier warrior at sales rebellion on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever, find me and come out. Of options. Yeah. Man, much love. Thank you for joining us. Um, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, guys, you're the best, man. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Love you guys. Appreciate you.